You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. In this episode, I'll be chatting to Rachel Coops. Rach is an actor, author, writer, producer, and yoga teacher. She has also danced on the play school stage for thousands of toddlers, developed engaging television for kids. Rach shares the movement and philosophy of yoga and mindfulness to a large community and believes in facing life's challenges with creativity, humor, and mindfulness practices. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. Hi guys, and welcome back. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Rachel Coops. And Rach, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to talk to you today. And a side note for any listeners, I've been close with Rach since a young kid, and she inspired me to study Jiva Mukti Yoga. I've been crashing on her couch in Sydney for many years, so we've known each other for a long time. And Rach is also the author of a book called Find Your True Strength. So today we're going to be diving into some themes of one of her chapters. Rach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Is. Thanks for having me. So I have a few little questions and I'd like to start with the question of what philosophy do you live by? So really, well, I was very lucky because when I was 18, I had pretty substantial mental health issues, crippling anxiety, and I ended up in a psychiatrist's office and he did all the tests that, you know, they always do. I had to fill out all this stuff. And then um, he wrote the script and I thought I was going to get, you know, a prescription for drugs. And he gave me a list of books. And those list of books included what I would think of as like cliff notes for spirituality. So some pretty basic, easy to access yoga philosophy and mindfulness books. And one of the key ones was a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs. And it basically was presenting the, the the fundamental ethical practices of Buddhism, which I believe are across yoga and lots of different spiritual lineages. In fact, a lot of the Sanskrit words in yoga are very similar to those in Buddhism. They just have slightly different meanings sometimes. And those principles, those very basic principles underlie a lot of the what we understand now today we coin it mindfulness um or John Kabat-Zinn uh about 20 30 years ago started to make this idea of mindfulness quite quite popular to the west it a lot of it comes from these books that I was given as this young woman in a very accessible way so there's not one particular philosophy that I live by and they, I guess there's a lot of similarities between across those lineages that I've studied, but it does all come back to a few key things. And one of them is when I think about the mantras that I live by, there's a couple of key mantras, so that might be helpful to give you an idea about those principles. One of them is Ahimsa, which is across Buddhism 
and yoga. It's the primary practice of of those um, practices, and that is a in Sanskrit is like not, and him is to harm. So ahimsa is to not cause harm. The reality of being human is we are we're always causing harm, you know, to the planet and to one another. Um, but when you start to you know scratch beneath the surface of that, when we cause harm primarily is when we're unconscious. We cause a lot less harm to each other, especially when we are well slept, focused, uh, and and just being mindful in the way we are to one another. So that's always been my primary practice that I teach my son as well. It was really helpful in the early toddler years when you're going, oh, balancing the act of, come on, share your toys with your friends. And then, hey, don't take your friend's toys. And him going, but you said to share. And I'm like, well, is it kind if your friend, it's always coming back to, is it kind? Uh, Then the other practice or mantra, I guess, that I use a lot is what is, is. Because I frequently find myself going, like railing up against my circumstances, <laughs> wishing things were to be would be different, or wanting things to change, and all the reasons why I can't right now. So, what is is Rachel? I tell myself a lot, <laughs> and from that place, it's not like apathy, like oh well, you know, I'm I'm helpless. This is my karma in life. It's like no, you still take action to get the things you want from your life, but there's times when you have to accept, and then again, take conscious action from that place. And then the other one, which comes from my teacher, Manorama, who's my Sanskrit and philosophy teacher, she tells the story of when she was looking after her mum who was dying in a little apartment in New York. And she used to often think, like, what is the point of this, you know, this pain or suffering? And she has a mantra that she got from her teacher which is what can I learn from this I can learn in no other way? What can I learn from this I can learn in no other way? So that served me very well, especially through those rockier times or when, you know, inevitably life is not presenting itself or rolling out the carpet in the way that I would like it to, (laughs) (laughs) which happens frequently. (laughs) Yeah. And that helps to focus on growth as well. I have some mantras that I also, you know, like to use. Some is like this too shall pass and Mm. then how can I grow? It's always that question of how can I grow from this or what can I learn from this? Mm. I don't grow very gracefully. That's the thing. I think that's why I need, like, I don't, (laughs) I'm not someone who, you know, there's those people who are like, yeah, just, I, I, and I have friends. I do have several friends like this, especially in the yoga world, like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. I just feel like the universe is, you know, telling me to make a different choice. And I'm like, wow, (laughs) because I just wait till I get, you know, hit by a bus to learn a lesson. I'm a bit like that too. I don't learn easily. (laughs) It's like, it's all good. It's all like forward. Then it's like, okay, now I've got to stop because nothing is working. (laughs) Yeah. So you have a chapter in your book called energy vampires there's social media there's an influx of news there's television there's netflix we've just got so many things coming in from all angles and you know we're always multitasking and um so could you just share a little bit of insight into the multitasking and the different energy sources that we can have coming in and how they can affect us yeah so 
Fundamentally, I think our most important job in the world today is to start to reclaim our energy. And a lot of our energy moves out through our attention, what we're placing our attention on. And the world is now built by billion-dollar companies to steal our attention. Like That's their job is <laughs> to like, how can we create this thing that is going to steal the customer's attention? So we're already in a society that is built on making sure that we are constantly being drained without us even realising it, without us even noticing it. So that's one part of it. One part of it is I think it's really imperative to start to notice where you are placing your attention because you'd be, you'd be surprised when you do start to notice that we're not always conscious of how much, how exhausted we feel after certain, you know, places, people, things. So that's the second part of it is becoming very aware of the things that light you up, the things that you can do for hours and, and you don't feel empty afterwards, you don't feel exhausted afterwards. And then there are things that you can spend just a few moments with it and you, you feel exhausted. And, and I call those things energy vampires. They, and by the way, multitasking, which is the scourge of this time <laughs> in history, it's not real. Like science has proven that actually it's not possible for the brain to multitask. It can't do it. So we're selling this lie to everyone that it's possible to like open all the tabs in your brain and have them open all the time. But we know when you do that with your computer, what happens or with your phone, there's going to drain your batteries. So it's a lie we've been sold. We try to do it, but let's table that first of all and go, all right, so multitasking is one thief of of our energy. But the crazy thing is that we all spend a lot of time doing things with people in places, in experiences that we know drain us. <laughs> we're, we're conscious of what is happening. It's not insidious like those companies and multitasking is. They, I think of them as like sneaky little drains. You don't realize that's happening until it's too late. But there are a lot of things we do where we know we're tired. And the thing about energy vampires, the thing about vampires in general, there's lots of different mythology around them, but the, but the key thing that's across all of them is they're not allowed in your house unless you invite them. Like you have to invite vampires in. So that's the first thing is like you are, you are ultimately responsible because a lot of people have said to me since they read that chapter, that's, it's, and for whatever reason, I guess it's in this time, it's really resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, but I have these circumstances where I have to be around those things that drain me. And again, we all have responsibilities. So let's not confuse responsibilities with uh, energy vampires because my child may be an energy vampire sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> however i'm getting something back in return you know or those caring for aging parents and that can be and there's a whole generation of women right now who are doing both who we call the sandwich generation where we're taking care of aging parents because we all had kids older and have little children so their responsibilities and they that's selfless service that's a different conversation there's a whole lot of other things that and energy vamp vampires are very attractive, like Edward in Twilight. You know, they're very handsome. They're very sparkly. They're very, 
They're very attractive, like social media. It's a really obvious one. Uh, so you're sort of attracted to it. And, and again, coming back to the fact that billion-dollar companies are creating energy vampires all the time. So they're like sparkly and pretty. And then before you know it, you've invited them in and you feel exhausted afterwards. So I think of there are certain, and they're really, in a way, a lot of them are, you know, the non-people and places things. Technology, for example, there's a lot of benefits of them as well. It's great to chill out in front of Netflix. It's great to, although I discovered that Netflix and chill is not what I thought it was recently. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just use the word and let it mean what it means. There's all these words that I've been saying that apparently mean something else. Embarrassing myself. (laughs) Um, So chilling, if you're genuinely chilling and relaxing in front of Netflix, great. And watching a great story. I love stories. But how often do we go, oh, I really should go to bed. But I'm just going to watch one more hour of Stranger Things. I'm just going to go to bed. Oh, I'm just going to watch one and a half hours of the final series of Stranger Things. And suddenly you find yourself being sucked in. You know you have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You've given half your life to some Netflix series or worse still, you've gone down an Instagram rabbit hole looking at cats and kittens. I'm speaking hypothetically, of course. (laughs) (laughs) find myself in a scroll hole uh so those things are our responsibility and those people who you spend time with and maybe it's someone who is really you know stuck or unhappy but you have given countless hours of your life to spending time with them and every time you leave you feel drained and you're not making anything better and they don't listen to anything you say anyway And so then it's the dance of like, how do I stay compassionate and empathetic to those around me and not drown in their, their stuff and also not let them steal my prana. They're called hungry ghosts in Buddhism. This idea of like, no matter how much you try and fill the hungry ghosts around you, they're still empty. So we're wasting our time. We're wasting our precious and none of us know how many minutes we have in this lifetime. And yet we just give them away like they're eternal to these things that give us nothing back. So I think it's one of the most important things we can do is to start to pay attention to where our our energy goes and get very, you know, brutal in starting to set boundaries for ourselves, like we do for our kids, for example, with social media, but also with other people. Who and what you give your time to, you know, time is our greatest currency. And who and what you give it, who and what you give that to is that's how empowered you're going to feel in your life. Beautiful. And it can be so hard for some people to set those boundaries. And it's almost like an addiction to the stimulation. That's how I see it. You know, that fight or flight response, that addiction to taking in an influx of energy. But I guess then it comes back to the highest the higher goal and realizing, yes, that we only have a certain amount of time on this earth and we need to take care of ourselves for one. A question that I've been using as well is when I'm kind of assessing where my energy is going is I can ask myself, okay, so I feel like I'm giving in this relationship, but what am I taking? And if there's no, what am I taking? For instance, if you're taking care of your friend and, you know, they're also there for you sometimes or you're getting more insight into 
parts of yourself by talking to them, then you're taking something from that. But if you're not taking anything or you're not getting anything or it's not helping you in some way, shape or form, then you really need to assess that situation. Yeah, and that's the other thing I would say is self-knowledge is such a big practice of mine. You know, it's called Svadhyaya in the yoga lineage. It's considered one of the things, the fundamental things. If you want more peace in your life, you have to study the self. And exactly what you're talking about is that process. I feel drained in this experience. Why is that? And having a look at that. And sometimes the self-knowledge is, wow, I do have to be more compassionate. Like I need to learn or I need to be able to sit with someone in pain without feeling exhausted afterwards. How do I not drown in other people's sadness? So, but sometimes if you're a people pleaser, like I'm a a reformed people pleaser, (laughs) you you know, you, you go, wow, I'm just trying to make sure this person likes me. That's really, it's just a manipulation. This process is just a manipulation. It's not actually me being, trying to serve someone else. And if you are all the people pleasers out there, if you struggle with boundaries, it's going to be really hard at first because saying no and setting and reestablishing a boundary where there has been one but has not been one is really uncomfortable and people are not going to like it. And you're going to have to, you're going to have to resolve that people pleasing thing in yourself. And that's the self-knowledge is like, how do I, how do I ensure that I feel like I'm enough? I don't have to be anything to be worthy in this world. I certainly don't have to drain myself the whole time to make sure that I am, I'm, I'm, I'm of value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's all just learning about ourselves and, challenging our own ideas and beliefs and digging under that surface in a, you know, looking at it with intrigue, not judgment, like not judging ourselves or being hard on ourselves for, you know, being a people pleaser, but seeing it as an, as an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and then to implement different strategies that can hopefully help us to get to our goal. Yeah. And, and John Kabat-Zinn emphasizes that and his understanding of mindfulness is like it's seeing things as they are. So you're like, okay, this is the pattern I do in these relationships or this is what I, how I'm a people pleaser or this is X, Y, Z. And then he says, but without judgment. Like it's really important to start to observe yourself kind of like a witness as if you're watching yourself on a movie going, ah. And I, I often like I laugh at myself a lot but not in a way of like, oh, my God, you're an idiot. As like, Oh my God, you are hilarious, Rachel, that you still do that. <laughs> I laugh at myself a lot too. Humor's the best. It's the best. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself, I think, in like a comedic, funny way. What about if um, boundaries, like if you set some boundaries or you say no and then people aren't respecting those boundaries, do you have any like tips or insights into how you could kind of navigate that? It's going to be different for every single one of us because every relationship that you're in with that person, place or thing is so unique. Like people that I set boundaries with, every single one of them is different and I have to set a different kind of boundary with each person. During lockdown, for example, last year when I was single parenting, and proper, he did. Gabriel didn't even go to his dad's for like six weeks because the girls, his younger half sisters, were sick. 
And so I had this six-week period of homeschooling, single parenting, we're in an apartment. I was writing the book in six weeks. Like it was not pretty. It was not fun. And I had to set boundaries in a way that I hadn't before with certain people. I was just like, I just don't have it. I don't have it for you at the moment. I've got nothing to give you. And so I had to be a bit tougher than I normally would be. And when they weren't listened to, I actually had to say, like I was in a you know boyfriend-girlfriend relationship to one particular friend, I need space from you. Just give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very painful for her. But I had someone do that to me as well last year and it was painful, but it taught me that it's okay to do that, to say, hey, listen, I love you, but right now I just got nothing. And how each person responds to your boundaries, you can't control that. You can't control it. All we can control is knowing in each moment how to, you know, stay compassionate always. Ahimsa, always compassionate, but at the same time, okay, I have to change, I have to change in this moment to make that boundary a bit firmer. And sometimes that means, you know, I often think people are like, oh, I want to resolve this relationship. I want it to be healthy. Sometimes a healthy relationship is space or not being in that relationship anymore. And that's, a really hard pill to swallow and it doesn't mean the relationship's over right it doesn't mean it's over it means there has to be a really big boundary put in place for us to have health in our in this relationship and whenever I'm in doubt I remember my teacher Manorama once saying it's actually those of us who are conscious and really interested in this process for me it's the spiritual path like we have to take responsibility for the health of our relationships. It's no one else's responsibility because anyone who isn't on this path, they're not interested in change and nor should they be. I mean, it's kind of a much easier way to live, by the way, <laughs> to just stay who you are and, you know, not have boundaries and, and kind of be in your own little bubble but if you are interested in growth and if you are interested in in being, you know, making the most of this precious lifetime and being the best person you can, then it's not going to be comfortable and it's up to us to kind of set those boundaries in the way that we need to and be okay with whatever the repercussions of that are. Yeah, and that's all self-responsibility, self-love, self-compassion as well. And then working through all of that stuff that arises for us when we set those boundaries, all those emotions, all those thoughts, and then working through them and finding ways to find that, you know, non-harm for ourselves in that situation. Yeah, and I think you're right. That's the key too, isn't it, is to like whatever arises, what you just said, whatever arises in that process, that's what you have to work with. Because if, mm-hmm. if what arises is the people pleaser, you're like, okay, how do I work with her? Not how do I deal with this person who's losing their mind at me because I've set a boundary. It's like, no, no, no. How do I deal with the people pleaser? That's my work in this moment. Mm-hmm. I think if you can do that, that's like a lifetime of, of, of growth. Yeah, I really, I've been doing a lot of that in my current relationship. So it's always like, what is presenting itself in me that I need to work on? Mm. Instead of putting it on the other person or trying to change them, I first look towards myself and nine times out of 10, 
it's something that, you know, I can work through or something I can then have a greater understanding about in myself, which then will help me to further like talk to them about that thing and then they'll have a greater understanding and then we can communicate or grow or evolve both with that understanding about ourselves in the relationship. So I find that's like something that I've been working on a lot, which I find really beneficial. Mm. So, Rach, what I really love about you is the way you teach yoga philosophy and it's always in a very wise but fun and light way and you're able to take those teachings and deliver them in a way for this generation to understand them. So is there any other yoga philosophy teachings that you could share with us today? So one of my favourite kind of teachings is around, as I said, acceptance and seeing how things are and then just rolling with them and that they're not always going to be pretty. So when G was about four, and you would remember this is because you were around a lot in those early days, I was, early on I was really hardcore about it. It was like all organic zucchini and no sugar and I pureed everything and like he was proper organic, sugar-free, chemical-free kid, baby, right? And then we went to our first Halloween experience when he was four. He was dressed up as like Dracula. He had a white face and and there's this street in Sydney that has this incredible display of houses and if you move into this street, everyone has to agree that on Halloween they, they're going to like get into the spirit and it transforms into like an American Halloween experience. So half of Sydney descends on this street. It's in Bronte. And we decided to do it. And he was with a couple of mates from preschool. And we descend into this street. And I was like, you know what? It's Halloween. It's a free-for-all. And just let him go with his little bucket. (laughs) I remember this. I remember that bucket in the cupboard with all the candy in there. (laughs) candy. And I'm like, all right, let's go for it, buddy. And it's all the rules you teach your kids at Halloween go out the window. Like, don't talk to strangers. We're going, here, go to a stranger's house. Knock on the door. Don't take anything from strangers. Take their candy. Oh, my gosh. I never thought of it like that. (laughs) Dress up as inappropriate things. It's like, which is all the things we say not to. So these four-year-olds were looking back at us as they're scurrying along the street to the houses like, when are the parents going to stop us? And they're just taking what they can and shoveling every sweet they can in their mouth. And so we do the street and they are like crack high on sugar. And then there's this little park at the end of the street when you, you loop around back and it is full of children who have OD'd on sugar and they're wild and they're just running all over the shop. It is feral. And I'm watching him like it's literally like he's higher than he's ever been and he's trying not to get caught. It's like if I look at him, then I'll stop him from doing it. And the other piece of the puzzle, of course, is that I'm on play school. And when he was really little and we're in playgrounds, you know, sometimes the parents would recognize me. And then I, and then of course, my son would be the one to be having the wild tantrums. And so you become quite visible, you know, I'm like, oh, whose child is that? Not my child. Sorry. Why are you calling me mum? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, he's racing around high on sugar and then he stops. And he looks at me with these wild eyes and whips his pants down and does a giant 
huge shit in the middle of the park, like a sugar OD poo. And I'm like, what do you do in that moment? All eyes are on you. Your child is the one child. (laughs) And so all the mums and I are laughing. They give me a doggy bag, you know, like that you keep the dogs poo up with and some wipes. And I'm like cleaning. And so in that moment, there are a few key things. I'm like, as you said before, so aptly, we have to laugh at ourselves in those shitty moments. We have to laugh at ourselves. We have to surround ourselves with people who laugh with us and who when stuff is going bad, we'll give you a wipe, we'll laugh with you, we'll help you get on with it, you know, who don't judge you, who don't look in the other direction. And then the other thing is is just accepting. Like those moments, what are you going to do in life when metaphorically (laughs) your life, your kid, is just relieving itself in the park and you can't stop the moment. And often those moments, um, you know, really shitty moments in life, I think we can feel things like shame, you know, shame and embarrassment and, I mean, how do we put all of that stuff aside that comes from our childhood and from our conditioning and whatever else and be in every single moment because then we start to live a life of joy. Then we start to, you know, be in acceptance of everything that is, learn to laugh at ourselves and let things be without feeling like we have to control them but also they have to be perfect because at the end of the day, it honestly was the most memorable Halloween. We had the best time. He's never going to have a first Halloween again and I really felt so grateful that I had such a great community around me in that moment so I think um I try to see those those moments the teachings of mindfulness of yoga of Buddhism I try to see them in those kind of moments not just in that I think it's all fun and well to be sitting on a yoga retreat or doing a cleanse in Bali or India or whatever and have no distractions and feel like I'm gonna learn some you know practice my spiritual path and learn some stuff but what about just doing it in those moments, that's where I think the value is and that's why I really am passionate about and why I wrote that book actually is I just want people to embrace all of that, the cray that is life, you know, and and not just embrace it but like have fun with it. Make the most of your life. Yes, make the most of your shitty life. <laughs> There's two quotes that my mum has told me over the years. One was, if you can't laugh at yourself, how can anyone else laugh at you? And that one really hit home with me. So if I stack it on the street, like I stacked it really bad down a gutter the other day and I will just lose it. I find it so funny. Like it's hilarious where I don't know if there was, maybe I've always had this kind of mindset, but, you know, some people Mm. would feel really embarrassed about that. But I just see as an opportunity to laugh at myself. And then one of the other one-liners that my mum has given me is there's no filter on comedy. So <laughs> there's just there's no filter on comedy. That's just what it is. So like if shit is hitting the fan or someone's shitting in a park, a sugar OD. <laughs> a sugar OD kid. I've got a lot of poo stories actually. Um, you've just got to laugh at it. Well, thanks so much for that story. And I also pulled a few little um, questions from your book that I want to share with people on energy vampires. 
So you guys can write these down if you have a pen or paper or just make a little note in the audio file to come back to later. So where do you leave tabs open in your life? Make a list of the energy vampires in your life. Who or what is draining you? How do these vampires make you feel? And then set boundaries and action steps to follow through. So that's some little wisdom from Rach's book. So you guys can um, do that exercise and let us know how you go. Thanks for having me, Is I wanted to say too, like you've always been such a massive um, empath and I'll never forget there was a moment and, and, and it's your superpower in case you don't know, your ability to, to really empathise. But I remember there was a moment when I was on McLeod's Daughters and I'm terrified of horses. Uh, I really don't enjoy riding them. And I was not a good rider. I had to learn for the show. And it was the final scene and there were like nine horses all in a row and it was really chaotic and you were sitting there, remember, and my horse took off. Do you remember this moment? I can't, I can't really remember this. I remember being there, but I can't remember what happened. So I'm excited to hear. Yeah, my horse took off and I came back and I was so shaky. And, I, and you, were, you were just a kid. You were so little. And you just sat next to me and you were like, that was really intense and really not okay. <laughs> I was like, I know. And you, you were just this little kid, but you were like 100% there for me through this really crappy day. We went and had vegetarian. There was this amazing little vegetarian place in um, Adelaide. We went there afterwards. And you just made me feel like I had family there and I felt held. So I thought you should know that you've always, you've always had this little desire to help others and this big empath inside you and it's wonderful to watch you grow in this capacity. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm definitely an empath. Well, I never knew that was my superpower but the older I've got, the more people around me that are close to me tell me that that's the their favourite quality that I have. So thanks for sharing. It's my pleasure. So if people want to connect with you, Rach, uh, where can they find your book and what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, the book is online. Um, actually, you can click on my Instagram because I've got a little link tree thing that has different ways you can buy it online. I'm on Instagram. I don't really use Facebook, but I'm on there and have a website if anyone wants to email me with any questions. They can contact me through that. Awesome. I'll put the links for Rachel's website and social media in the show notes. So thanks so much. Thanks, Is. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey. If this podcast resonates with you, I would love your support. So please share, subscribe, or leave a five-star review. Don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay magic.